0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. sermon text today is Psalm 43, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 5. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You can be seated. <laughs> Good morning. We're going to be jumping into a new series on the Psalms through the summer, uh, starting in Psalm 43. So what I want to do this morning is briefly hopefully very briefly, uh, introduce the Psalms <clears throat> in just a few minutes, and then we'll dive right into Psalm 43 and, uh, and go through that, and that's that. So please pray with me before, uh, before we dive into the Word. Heavenly Father, lead us into all truth through your Scriptures. Pray that your Spirit would be at work now to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow to test our hearts and cut away all that is imperfect, unholy, unclean, and give us new hearts, hearts of hearts of flesh that beat for you, that love the truth, and love you. I ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So the Psalms, uh, or in Hebrew, Tehillim, is a book, the largest book in your Bible. It's 150 chapters. You can be turning to Psalm 43. I'm not going to make you jump around or anything like that today. <clears throat> uh, the Psalms are not just like a hymn, a hymnal, like a hymn book like you would you would get in maybe a more traditional church. They'd have pews with hymns in them. Sometimes they're organized by, by topic or by by theme or whatnot. Uh, the Psalms have many authors, most notably David, who wrote about 73 of them. 49 of them are anonymous and then there's a handful of other authors authors that compose them. Uh, but it's not quite just you know a random loose collection of psalms. There actually seems to be, somewhat of a story arc through the Psalms. So even to understand the Psalms rightly, uh, we need to be kind of looking at them in their in their larger scope. The structure has typically been assigned five books. All right, and you'll actually see that in your Bibles today. If you're in Psalm 43 and you look over at the beginning of Psalm 42, you'll see it says book two right above Psalm 42. Uh, so there must be a book one, and I'll let you know that there's a books three, four, and five. So there's this five-book structure in the Psalms. And generally speaking, the first book uh, begins with Psalm 3. Psalms 1 and 2 are more of kind of like an introductory psalms. Psalm 1 has this beautiful promise of blessing for the man or woman who meditates on God's law day and night, or his teaching, his Torah, day and night. And so as we read through the psalms all summer, as we read through Psalm 43 today, uh, there's a promise of blessing as we meditate On the lot, but it requires not just a a superficial, cursory glance, but really chewing on it, digesting it, and and sinking it down deep into our hearts. Which is difficult to do, or not difficult, just requires that time, that chewing, that meditation, because the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. Uh, Most of Job is poetry, so we're kind of familiar with that. And uh, actually, like a third of your Bible is poetry which is odd considering that poetry is a more difficult form of language to understand. It's usually less clear, it's usually more open to interpretation, has a kind of a broader uh, application potentially. It uses things like imagery, metaphor, to communicate what it's intending to mean. So it's curious that God would put together a book of all truth for us called the scriptures, and like a third of it would be difficult communication. Don't you to think about that for a second, that like God believes the best way to communicate, a third of his word, is through stuff that's less clear, more difficult, and requires meditation and chewing on. And so that, let, let that be a challenge to us, to not just try to breeze through the Psalms, not trying to just glance through them. Okay, I got the point. The whole point of poetry is that you're meditating on it, chewing on it, thinking about uh, certain images, like, man, what does it mean that God is a, a sword or a shield about me? What does that really mean? Like you could take a few minutes and just meditate on that and pray about that. So that's just a, uh, a challenge and a caution to us as we move through the Psalms. So Psalm 1 has this beautiful promise of blessing for those who meditate on it. Psalm 2 has this glorious picture of the messianic king ruling uh, at the father's right hand over the nation's. And then book one starts in Psalm three and it generally has a lot more Psalms that are probably written uh, by David during his times of persecution and running around in the wilderness, hiding out from Saul and his enemies. And so there's this, these themes of deliverance for David while his enemies seem overwhelming. Book two has uh, a theme more prominent of this hope for a future return to the temple and for the messianic king. Book three starts in Psalm 73 And it has uh, themes of like the promised Messiah's kingship, despite Israel being in exile. And then book four, Psalm 90, starts this book four, uh, has many themes about like all creation praising God, which would make sense. Like you're in exile, you're away from the temple. You think like, ah, I I can't worship God. And the Psalms are like, no, actually, like all creation sings his praise. Like his temple is the whole earth. And just because you're not in Jerusalem doesn't mean that you're outside of God's presence. And then book five starts in Psalm 107, and it has a lot of prominent themes about God's final victory over evil and death at the end of the world. But, as commentator Derek Kidner says, it really resists classification. So, like, we have these five-book structure. We can generally say these things, but here's what he says. Its structure, the Psalms, is perhaps best compared with that of a cathedral built over and perfected over a matter of centuries in a harmonious variety of styles rather than a palace displaying the formal symmetry of a single and all-embracing plan. So whereas other books might very clearly have like single author, he structured the whole thing, it makes a lot of sense, we can clearly see what they were doing. The Psalms are compiled over centuries and put together in their final form sometime after many of these are written, uh, probably like after the Babylonian exile. And so even though we can say, yeah, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, they kind of have these, these themes, Don't get so caught up in that that you're letting that be kind of like your governing hermeneutic, like, oh, it's book three, so this psalm must have this kind of theme. It's just not necessarily the case. It's still kind of a mix. But nonetheless, uh, almost all commentators, all scholars kind of recognize that there seems to be almost this narrative arc through the psalms, through the songbook of God's people. So with that, we're going to jump into Psalm 43, which is... Uh, perhaps a continuation of Psalm 42, actually. Uh, Psalm 43 echoes a couple lines from Psalm 42. They have the same refrains. In 42.5, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Same thing in 42.11. And then that's echoed at the end of 43, in 43.5. So that would indicate, like, maybe there's this, like, refrain happening over and over again, and we should really read these psalms as one. There's also the same line in 42.9, Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemies. And that's repeated in 43 verse 2. But nonetheless, we're going to treat Psalm 43 as a single unit, whether it is really uh, like its own psalm that just is mirroring some of these themes, or it's its own refrain. Remember, like we could do the same thing with a a modern song. We could take one, one verse or one chorus from the song and sit down and analyze, chew on it without considering the whole thing necessarily, and that would be fruitful. So whether it is its own independent psalm or it's really the last verse of Psalm 42, nonetheless, we're going to consider it in one go here. Psalm 43 doesn't have, a, doesn't have uh, like a, an attribution to any particular person, but Psalm 42 does. If you go back and look at like the title of Psalm 42, it says, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So we know from 2 Chronicles uh, 25, that David had like arranged a whole group of people to be like a formal musical production for worship in the temple. And there were different tribes, different families organized by different instruments and choral abilities and things like that. So this is like written specifically for these people to perform uh, in worship of God or celebrations or festivals, holidays, things like that. And this amaskil is a term that's probably just some sort of hard to interpret Hebrew term for like this kind of song. Right, like we have different co- songs, like a waltz or a uh, tango or something like that. Like a masculine probably gives a sense of what type of song it is. We just don't really know. And there's lots of little musical markers like that through the Psalms. That it's some like random Hebrew word, and like we just kind of we can give it our best guess as to what this actually means. But it's probably some sort of musical marker, right? Like you have in your in your like you know formal choir music or or classical music, words like allegro or fortissimo, whatever. These are Latin words we still use to tell us to get louder or go slower, things like that, and we just don't know what they are. The sons of Korah are most likely the descendants of a man named Korah who rebelled back in Numbers while they were wandering around in the wilderness, and the earth opened up and swallowed him, but his descendants lived on, and they were members of the Levitical tribe. So these would have been priestly people who had have access to the temple. Their job would be to help facilitate the nation's worship. And so Korah's sons are most likely uh, a band of these either instrumentalists or or musicians of some kind or choralists. And it could be not that they wrote this psalm, but that the psalm, the Hebrew reads either way. It could be a psalm for the psalms, sons of Korah, like I wrote this for them to perform, or it's a, a psalm of the sons of Korah, like they wrote this themselves. But either way, it doesn't affect the meaning that much. Just letting you know, you're going to see this at the beginning of all the Psalms we sing. We see this summer, and as you read through the book of Psalms, that each one usually has this kind of introductory matter that introduces you to uh, like what the song's about, who wrote it. Sometimes it has really great context, like this is when David was doing this kind of thing. And then you can go back in First and Second Samuel, read about the history, what was going on, what triggered David to write these kinds of words. So don't breeze right past the titles. Sometimes that information is actually really, really helpful for us. So, let's jump into Psalm 43 now. Again, we're going to treat it as an independent unit today. And it starts with this in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. It's a cry for help. Vindicate me. This is maybe perhaps David, who is either, it could be he's on the run from his son Absalom, who seized the throne, and he's had to run away for his life. It could be he's run away because Saul has tried to kill him, and Jonathan warned him, and he fled into the, into the wilderness, and he was on the run for about a decade of his life. Uh, or it could be some other time, or it could be some other person. But either way, this person feels persecuted, and they need God to vindicate them, right? That's a call for God to prove my case right, prove me to be in the right. I'm on the run. It seems like I'm an outlaw, but really, I'm the good guy here. It's a call for the Lord to defend him against ungodly and unjust men, Earlier in Psalm 42, these, uh, these unjust, ungodly men seem to be mocking this person, saying things like, where's your God now, right? You're losing. Where's your God? Like, you've been cut off from him. And so David is like, no, prove them. Like I still have a relationship with you. I'm, the right, I'm in the right here. He also calls, defend my cause. Show yourself to be on my team. Prove that you have my back, God. Deliver me there seems to be almost a sense of betrayal these deceitful and unjust men right that would wound you so so if the people closest to you actually turned on you right god ah deliver me from these deceitful and unjust men you kind of get the sense that this is not a fair fight that this is unjust it's not just i've got my team they've got their team god help me to win but no like i'm the lo- i'm overwhelmed i'm at the lowest of the lows i have no allies God, you're the only help that I have, and I'm turning to you. Please, save me. It sounds a lot like Job, right? We just finished our series through Job. This sounds like the kind of prayer Job would utter. God, I'm surrounded by these three worthless friends who are accusing me of being a wicked person, and I know they're not. Vindicate me. Prove that I'm in the right. I have no allies. No one's on my team. Lord, help me. For direct application here, This could be like literally and particularly directly true, I know, for members of our military. I know I felt this when I served for four and a half years. I know others have relayed this sense to me that oftentimes you feel mocked for your religion, for your faith, for your pursuit of virtue, for chastity, for holiness. And in the military, oftentimes you feel like you're surrounded by a culture that's actually much more involved or or given over towards sinfulness, loose living, even debauchery. Uh, really coarse language, and so if you're in the, if you're serving in the service or maybe law enforcement or some other you know type of field, oil workers probably feel the same, right? Not stereotype too much, but you might feel like you're literally surrounded by people all day long who would just mock you for your desire to live a holy life. Christianity just seems so stupid to them. Like, why would you follow Jesus? Why would you live this way? Why would you pass up on this pleasure? But your cause that you would call out to God to defend you for, might also be an unjust or treacherous co-workers or boss, disagreement with a family member or even like a, a rebellious child, a landlord who refuses to uphold his obligations. It's okay for us to kind of allegorize to da, um, yeah, to yeah our interpretation here and apply it to us. That's the intent of the poetry and of the Psalms here. Yes, it has a very specific context, but we can move that context to ours and think of, man, what kind of enemies might I have? What kind of trials am I going through? What kind of dangers, even if they're non-personal, it could be a cancer diagnosis or, or some other illness that you feel overwhelmed, you feel unjustly uh, situated with your circumstances. And so we can call out the same call to God. So I want you to have something like that in your mind now. Maybe you don't have anything. God bless you. That's awesome. But it wouldn't necessarily have to be like you're being chased down by violent, brutal men. Right? We can apply this to our own lives in a sense of feeling uh, deceived, feeling betrayed, feeling like un- injustice or ungodliness is surrounding us and threatening to overwhelm our own souls. And finally, I just want to say to verse 1, it's okay. It's absolutely okay. Nothing wrong with praying for deliverance from our circumstances. God, my environment, my circumstances, the events in my life, they're awful right now. Please deliver me from them. But we never want to stop there. John Piper notes that everybody prays that way, even unbelievers. Everybody wants to be delivered from pain and misery and suffering, from a lack of comfort, hopelessness, despair. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be delivered from really terrible circumstances. So everyone can pray, verse 1, God, defend me, deliver me, help me. But what the psalmist does next in verse 2 is he actually turns his prayer away from his circumstances to his own soul, which is where the rest of the psalm is going to go. Look at verse 2 with me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Translation, Lord, I'm looking to you for deliverance. You're my refuge. I'm running to you in prayer right now. How come I'm still suffering? Why am I still oppressed? Where are you, God? God. Maybe you felt that. Have you ever labored over something in prayer for months, maybe even years, with no answer, no resolution? Things might have even gotten worse. It would be so natural to feel like God's abandoned you. Lord, I'm running to you in prayer. I'm recognizing you're my only hope. You're the only solution to my problems and circumstances. Where, where are you? Why haven't you showed up? It's natural for us to feel abandoned by God when we're treated unfairly, when we suffer, when we face danger, all those kinds of things. Psalm 72 says this He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and Him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in His sight. But yet, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. So it doesn't feel like God is taking pity on the weak and needy and saving their lives. Sometimes they're destroyed. Sometimes they're unjustly imprisoned. Sometimes they're betrayed. And so there's this tension between God's promises of deliverance in his character, who he is, and the fact that he does occasionally delay or say no to our present circumstances. And Job, we saw that in Job as well. Job saw that. So it's okay for us to pray for our deliverance from our circumstances. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not primarily what we need when our friends mock us, when our boss mistreats us when our body starts falling apart or your family betrays you. Everybody prays like that. It doesn't take faith to pray that way. Everybody wants to avoid their circumstances, embarrassment, shame, failure. But when God delays or God says no, the unbeliever can say, God didn't, sorry, yeah, the unbeliever will say, God didn't save me when I wanted him to in the manner that I wanted him to, as fast as I wanted him to. I'm done with this. I'm gonna go find another God. The Christian, though, in the midst of our trials, when we're tempted to say that, we're, are we really willing to put God in the driver's seat if he's going to delay? If he's going to lead us down paths we wouldn't have cho- chosen for ourselves? And so it requires so much faith to pray what the psalmist is going to pray now in verses 3 to 5. It takes so much faith to say, pause to the circumstances, pause to all the suffering and the pain. What I really need is more God in my life. Show up. God, lead me into your presence. It reminds me of the man whose uh, child is demon-possessed in Mark chapter 9, who came to Jesus for help. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's all of our trials. All of us are tempted to wander away in the midst of temptation, trial, suffering. And so the psalmist here, the man in Mark 9, what we need to do is call out, God, things really don't look good right now. I need you to show up. Help me to believe in you more. And that's what the psalmist is gonna say in verses three to four. Read those with me now. This is, this is the true call for help now. He's turned away from his circumstances. Now he's turning towards God. I need a deeper relationship with you. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. You see just an increased ascent to the hill then to the dwelling place. That would be the temple. Then I'll go to the altar of God even closer to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O oh God, my God. Looking at verse three, the psalmist now turns from asking God to vindicate, defend, or deliver him to asking God to lead him deeper into his presence. Yes, God, it would be so sweet if you were to deliver me right now, but it would be sweeter still to draw closer to you. <clears throat> he says, send out your light and truth. That's his plea. God, send out your light and your truth. Light is this image of heavenly realities, things that are really weighty, that which is really real, and that's why it's paired with truth in the same line. God, send out that which is more real, more enduring, more substantial, more weighty, more eternal than what we see and experience here on earth. What we need most in our trials is God's light and truth. We don't need deliverance. God has already promised to save us eternally and ultimately And that's what we saw at the end of Job. That's what we preached on all last week. So we don't need deliverance, though it would be nice. What we need is faithfulness and a call deeper into God's presence, deeper trust. He won't always save us from trial and temptation. In fact, all of us are gonna die someday. So like no matter what, even if you live this really, really easy life, you're still gonna die. You're still gonna face death. So God ultimately won't deliver you from that He'll use that, turn it for your good, to bring about the greatest day on your life when you see your Savior face to face. And then you can wait in heaven for the resurrection. So he promises to lead us through our trials and temptation, not necessarily to change our circumstances or deliver us from them. What we need most in our trials is God's light and truth. He won't always save us. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-7 says this. Paul says, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. And this is in the context of Paul being persecuted, experiencing all kinds of dangers, terrible circumstances, saying we know that this body is only temporary. Our circumstances, things that cause us pain and suffering, they're not what's eternal and lasting. And so as Christians, we have to walk by faith, not by sight. And This kind of prayer, to turn from just God deliver me, to God give me more of you, lead me deeper into your presence, help me trust you more, is a huge, sincere act of faith to believe that God is the one who's going to have to show up and do something, even if it means leading you through trial or even death. Unbelievers can't pray this kind of prayer. To pray for God in the midst of your trials, for more of God, not just deliverance, is an act of extreme faith. And as Christians, we actually have like 2,500 years of God's acting in history and revelation to read even further into the psalm. John 1, 1-5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 319 21 this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John 8:12. again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 1244 to 46, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So as the psalmist cried out, God, send forth your light and your truth, we now can see that that ultimately points forward to Christ himself, who is the very truth of God. I'm the way, the truth, the life. Here he said four times through John, I am the light of the world. I'm the light coming in. I am the revelation of the most real realities, the most weighty things that matter most. So we can cry out with the psalmist, send us Christ. Send us more of Christ. Show me Christ. I would rather be filled with faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, courage, temperance, and be less of pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, sloth, than have my present circumstances removed from me. Unbelievers love darkness. They can't pray that prayer. To ask God to send forth their light would show the silt that's been stirred up in their glass through trial. We use that image in Job. Or would show the the ways of their life that they're sinning their own wickedness, their own ways of unbelief. They can't pray for God to send forth their light. Otherwise, they'll be exposed. But as Christians, we have no fear of being exposed. We have no fear of seeing more of Christ because we know that our sin has been taken away and removed. And so we can call out with the psalmist here in verse 3, God, send out your light and your truth. Send Christ. Let Christ lead me. Let him bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Let him bring me to the altar of God. Christians walk by faith, so they look to Christ, the light of men to lead them even deeper into God's presence when there, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And that's what the psalmist prays next. Look at verse 4. Once God has sent forth his light and his truth to bring him deeper into his presence, verse 4 I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I'll praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So, yes, pray that God would deliver you from danger or trial, but don't ever stop there. Plead with God. To give you eyes of faith to see what is really real. Plead with him to send forth his light and his truth. To send Christ. Ask him to send this to you, to lead you into his presence, to the altar of God, where you will see the lamb slain for sinners and raised to life to shepherd his people into green pastures of eternity. But the psalmist is thinking in terms of the temple, inside the Ark of the Covenant, where the, the greatest sacrifices were offered by the Israelite people. And so we now know when we think of altars, we see those as the shadow pointing forward to the ultimate reality, which was Christ Himself on the cross. Lord, lead me, send out your light and your truth, lead me not to an earthly t- dwelling with a lamb, but the lamb who is slain before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Lead me to the cross. Let me see that altar. Let me see cross. Sorry, let me see Christ on the cross for sinners. My God, my exceeding joy. Even while I wait for you to vindicate or deliver me, which again, might not happen, I will worship you, my exceeding joy. When my friends mock and laugh at me for pursuing modesty and dress and chastity in relationships, I'll still praise you. When I'm unjustly fired from my job and worry about my future, career, or finances, I will lift up my head in song. While the nurse is hooking up my IV for my third round of chemo treatment, I'll meditate on your promises and the resurrection. When my own sin damages relationships and makes me feel unworthy of your love, I will preach the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb to my own soul. Pray for deliverance, but more importantly, pray that God would send Christ through his spirit to lead you into the presence of the Father where you will find exceeding joy despite your trials and your circumstances. And then preach these truths to yourselves, which is what happens in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me now. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me, hope in God? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here we have the psalmist speaking to himself. He's like preaching these truths that he's discovered in God's presence through prayer and meditation, through God's light and truth. He's preaching them to his own soul. We see here a divided soul. How often have we been here? His heart tells him to re- that God has rejected him, that God has abandoned him. We saw that in verse 2. God, where are you? you've left me. But his eyes of faith can see God's light and truth. They can see what's on the altar and they are abounding in joy and praise, even though enemies or dangers or trials are around them. And so he's preaching what he knows to be true by faith to his soul, to his heart, which is still burdened with sorrow, with fear, with thoughts of abandonment and hopelessness. The psalmist preaches these truths to his own soul. O soul, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you stirred up? Why are you worrying? He commands his own soul, Hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Soul, why are, you, why are you saying this? Why are you fearing? Did you not see what was on the altar? If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also give us all things? How could you doubt? How could you doubt the goodness of the Father when you've seen everything He's given for you, the way He's brought you into His presence? How do we do this? How do we take Psalm 43? How do we, in the weeks to come, in the years to come, move from praying for vindication, for deliverance? Those things are good, but not stopping there moving forward to praying that God, even in the midst of our trials, if He would choose not to deliver us or He would choose to delay He would lead us deeper into his presence, into a deeper joy that even though danger surrounds us, fear surrounds us, our circumstances look terrible or hopeless, we would still be able to rest in solid joy in God's presence in his dwelling place. I've got four challenges for us this summer. Kind of as we go through all the Psalms, I want these kind of hanging over our heads to help us walk by faith, not by sight. to meditate more and more and more on God's promises and his means of grace to draw us deeper into his presence. Number one is give your soul a steady diet of spiritual truths spiritually discerned. Just read and pray scripture. The psalmist here knows what is true because he knows God's word. He knows God's promises. When he begins to doubt God's character, when he begins to believe that God has abandoned him, he knows what's true. He knows God's covenant faithfulness in the past, God's promises to be covenantally faithfully in the future, and so he's resting on the promises of God to deliver him ultimately with life everlasting. I love this line from uh, Come Thou Fount. It says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. We're all prone. We're all prone. None of us are not, are not going to escape this. We're all prone to wander into unbelief and despair when things look bad. It is so quick. I mean, I know I can look back over the past 12 months or the past two or three years, like things that seem so little now that totally mess with my chili and maybe go, ah, what's happening, God? What are you doing? Like, I can't believe you're leading me that way. And I bet you can think of things like that too. Things that you look back now and you're like, wow, God was so faithful through that. Look at his plan, look at his design. But in the moment, you were freaking out. We're all prone to wander into despair and unbelief. And so we all need to hear the voice of our shepherd daily. So here's my challenge is we're going to read Psalm 43 this week, 53 the next week, 63 the next week, 73 the next week. That's because it's 2023. Okay, so we're going to do that all the way through 143 would be the last one. Keep up with the Psalms. Read all the Psalms in between each week. That's nine Psalms, or you could even read 53. So you could do two a day. If you're already on a Bible reading plan, all right, don't derail that, that's great. But if you're not, uh, if you're not regularly ingesting scripture, hear the voice of your shepherd daily. You're prone to wander. You need to hear his voice. And so this is a really, really practical tool you could use to get into the promises of God, see the character of God, see what is true and real, and see his light and his truth daily. So just read two Psalms a day between now and next Sunday. And then we hit 53. And then between then and the next Sunday, Second one is to memorize scripture. The, prayer, the fight for faith happens at all times, in all places, under all kinds of circumstances. You don't get to choose when you need the word ready to fight for unbelief and preach to your soul. You don't get to pick when that happens. It could be laying awake on your bed at night. It could be in like the, the lunchroom at work. It could be driving down the road. It could be getting a phone call that you didn't expect. If you aren't equipped with the word of God in your heart, then false faithless thoughts will threaten to overwhelm you almost immediately sometimes and drive you towards despair, drive you away from the truth. And so my challenge is to store up the word in your heart. Pick one of those Psalms this summer to memorize. Pick one of the Psalms this summer to memorize. I'm already, I already picked mine out. I'm going to do Psalm 63. Joseph's going to preach that in two weeks. It's a beautiful Psalm. It's a beautiful picture of God's light and his truth and his character and who he is. It's a beautiful picture of being satisfied by God himself, not by our external circumstances. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna work towards memorizing that this summer. I don't know what you need. I don't know what your soul needs right now or what promises, what light and truth you need right now. But pick a psalm, maybe one as you're reading. It doesn't have to be one we preach. Pick something, okay, to memorize this summer, to store it up in your heart so that you can fight for faith and hear your shepherd's voice, even when you don't have the scriptures handy. And third, in Acts 2.42, uh, Peter gives this beautiful uh, sermon at Pentecost. About 3,000 people are saved that day and baptized. And then it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. like Corporately, as a body. It's like what we're doing right now. The apostles' teaching. We're holding up the scriptures, learning about God's truth, learning about the deposit of faith, citing our faith, confessing it together. They gather, gave themselves to Fellowship. They gave themselves to the breaking of bread, which I think refers to communion, and to prayer. But they did that thing, those things together. The Christian life is meant to be done together. It's so easy over the summer. When you have vacations, you have sports, things like that going on, family in town, it's so easy to not go on a Sunday, right? And those things are fine. Go ahead and travel. Do your camping trips, right? I'm, I might be gone some Sundays here, but make an effort. If you're in town, if you're able to get to church, your soul needs it week by week. Every seven days, your soul needs the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and that's something we do and minister together. God, I think, most often sends forth his light and his truth when we're gathered together as a body in his presence. And so come, be a part of this church on Sunday mornings. Maybe that's been your habit, not just in the summers, but for a while, that you haven't had very regular church attendance, you haven't been part of the body, you haven't committed to membership yet. Maybe you've never been baptized. Seek a deeper fulfillment and satisfaction and joy in God by seeking a deeper commitment to his people, particularly this summer. Be here. Or also consider joining a small group. So this this very evening, I don't know, 15 of y'all are going to end up over at my house and we're going to pray for each other. We're going to fellowship. We're going to go back to the apostles' teaching and we're going to minister to one another's souls and point out, oh, you're, you're, fail, you're, you're struggling with unbelief in this area, here's a promise you can hold on to. Let me pray for you. Let me encourage you in that. We need each other to shepherd us towards eternity. So my call to us is to read scripture, maybe two Psalms a day. Read in between 43 and 53 before next week. Pick something to memorize this summer. Equip yourself with the word of truth. That's the sword of the spirit in Ephesians. Arm yourself with God's word so that you can fight for faith when you're tempted to despair. And then finally, press in deeper here and I think you'll be drawn deeper even into God's own presence. We're gonna do that now actually as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is God sending forth his light and truth, preaching the gospel to us, to our eyes, right? To our eyes of faith, we receive the Lord's Supper. We see Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross given to us. That when we might despair that God has forsaken us, that he's left us dead in our sins, Christ says, no, look, this is my very body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Don't think that. Know that I'm faithful, even when you're unfaithful. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.